Okay, so the uh, so we got up to Perik Bet Pasuk Kaf Gimel, which is really a new uh, section. If you're following the way that the Torah is divided up in terms of the spaces, so the natural divisions of the uh, of the actual text and the spaces in the text uh, is a more reliable guide um, to uh, the how to understand the. the um, how to understand what the different components are than uh, than the prakim that are kind of arbitrary. Even the aliyot are not uh, are not especially helpful for that sometimes because uh, the the aliyot, even though they do try to end on uh, some kind of a note that is meaningful, they're not always reliable in terms of. Sometimes they you know break up the middle of a story, as you see the the conversation between Moshe and Hashem uh, is. Uh, you know, is interrupted a couple of times uh, by Aliot. So, and anyway, we're up to Pasuk Kaf Gimel of Perak Bet. Vayhi vayamim arabim mahem. Sorry, can I ask a quick question? Yeah. Uh, the concept, general idea. Uh, so, something like we talked about a lot is how, uh, I guess, some of the, the major ideas in Yahadu today, kind of, uh, they don't seem to be issues back then. So, whereas something like marrying non non Jew manual, yeah, today is enough to you know grounds for excommunication and kind of like the, the last straw that keeps somebody connected to the, the right. Back then didn't seem to be something uh, our greatest greatest figures in Tanakh. Some married did something. Right. And, are you particularly focused? What, what and why are you thinking that that particularly connects to this story? Just because of the Tsipora and sure, the beginning of right. uh, Abraham put such a significant Seems to be marrying most appreciative. One of the biggest things on this side that I see. So, uh, yeah, I, I hear what you're saying. Um, I, the, my my sense is that uh, that at this time, before the giving of the Torah, that issue was not uh, understood in the same way that we understand it. In other words, that. Um, that the uh, that Avram Avinu in particular and and Yitzchak also because they were dealing with the foundation of the uh, of the nation, so they had to make sure that the the imahot were of a similar background to themselves, so they, that the uh, the foundation of the building of Am Yisrael would be consistent. But you see that even the shvatim, as far as we can tell, uh, you know, obviously the midrashim. Uh, the midrashim uh, uh, try to uh, mitigate it to some extent. The implication that the that the shvatim intermarried with uh, uh, people outside their family. They say, oh, they were born with twins, and there were really girls in the family, and they married their half sisters or whatever. There's all kinds of, uh, of unusual uh, scenarios that are envisioned that obviously do not um, are not stated explicitly in the text, and there's no textual basis for it. But it's based upon the uh, the desire to uh, limit the amount that there might have been intermarriage. Even with Tamar and Yehuda, there are midrashim that try to say that Tamar wasn't really uh, Kenani, 
uh, from a Kenani background, and that that's why there's only one person who's mentioned as Ben Aknaanit in the whole uh, uh, in in the uh, lineage of the Shvatim. But then again, there are also midrashim that say that uh, the reason why Yaakov Avinu didn't want his grandchildren to carry his casket was because some of them were from Kenani uh, um, and a mixture of Kenani. So what it seems to be is that the concern at the time of the at the time of uh, pre pre matantua was more of an ideological concern and less of a what you might call a halachic concern. So if the person uh, had the same values and same uh, principles and same outlook as the uh, chatan, or at least if he was able to uh, impress that upon her and convince her to uh, to see things the same way and to buy into it. So then that might be a shiduch. And obviously in the case of Rivka, Rachel, and Le'ah, they came from the same background as Avram, which is a whole other thing and a whole other piece to explore what exactly it was about the family of Avram that lent itself to uh, producing an Avram Avinu. Because um, even though Avram Avinu is a pioneer and seems to be a uh, really a maverick, uh, the reality is that is that he came from somewhere and um, he's and he's very concerned with always returning back to his roots. So he obviously saw redeeming qualities in the family, in his, in his family of origin, even as much, even though he broke away from them, he saw redeeming qualities there. And, um, and if, and if there's an interesting, I heard an interesting uh, observation several years ago, many years ago, uh, that I think I might've shared with you once, but maybe not, maybe I only shared it in Parashat HaShavua classes, but it, there, there's a famous question that's asked, you know, you have Ele Toledot Yitzchak, you have Ele Toledot uh, Yaakov, but you never have Ele Toledot Avraham. And that's a very unusual uh, thing. How come there's a, and so they give kind of a midrashic answer that, oh, because everyone who, uh, you know, who believes in one God is really a child of Avraham, so it doesn't want to say Ele Toledot Avraham, but I saw an interesting, more pshat-oriented answer that, um, no, that really it's not toledot Avram. It's really, toled, there's, a, there's one toledot that we, we overlook, which is at the end of Parashat Noach, which is Ele toledot Terach, actually. If you look at the story of Avram Avinu, it's actually the story of toledot Terach, because it's first the story of Avram, but Avram and Lot, actually, and not only Abraham and Lot, but also uh, also uh, tying back to uh, you know the continual return of Abraham to his roots to find a wife for Yitzchak, and then Yaakov goes back uh, to to marry. Really, Rivka sends him back to marry from her family as well. So if you look at it from a, a broader perspective, it's not really a story of Abraham alone. It's really a story of the Toldot Terach with Abraham as the uh, the key figure. So much so, you can make that argument that you see that um, actually Terach went with Avram for part of the way. It's not exactly clear uh, what was what what they shared and what they differed on, let's say, uh, Avram and Terach. At some point, Terach is left behind and Avram continues on alone. But there is a sense from the text even that Terach shared some of the ideas of Avraham at a certain point, and therefore went, he definitely left Ur Kasdim, Lalechet Artsakena'an, together with Avraham. So there was something there, and, I, and, and there was something there that Avraham recognized. And the, the, I don't want to go too, too far, but the, uh, but the, the something has to do with the, uh, with the Hachnasat Orchim and the sense of um, Chesed and Tzedek that the family had 
even though they didn't connect it fully with the idea of Yichud Hashem, like Avram Avinu did, and it was still more of a, just a, a good habit and a good, um, it was a Hanagat Tova, but the good habit of the people of Chesed and Hachnasat Orchim uh, is a, uh, it reflects a sense of the importance of the creation independent of the self. And that quality that they had, as opposed to Sidom, which was the opposite of that, let's say the opposite extreme of that. So that idea was in the family of Avram Avinu, a sense of universality of chesed and of uh, concern for others, that sense of the universality of human need and you know taking care of the uh, uh, of creatures of God was something that you even see that they had the idea of God because when when uh, when Eliezer comes uh, yeah you know Lavan says Bo Beruch Hashem and he uses the word Yudke Vavke to describe Hashem. So there was some kind of a an awareness of that, which which no other character in the Tanakh who is not Jewish ever uses that name uh, in the beginning to refer to Hashem. So there's something in the family of Avram that was uh, that was there that he wanted to make sure to keep looping back his family members in the foundation of the nation. But it doesn't seem like the Shvatim married uh, people from the same background. They might have avoided marrying Kenanim. But because the Kenanim were particularly depraved in their culture, let's say, but it doesn't seem like they avoided marrying uh, non non Jews, so to speak, you know, non Semites or whatever you want to call it. Um, at that stage, obviously, after Matan Torah, that became more of an issue. But at the giving of the Torah, whoever was there for the breath of Har Sinai became a Jew, and that was uh, that was it. I mean, just like the Rambam says. The Rambam compares every ger goes through a process of Kabbalat Torah and Brit Milah and Tevilah. And that's what the Jews did in the Midbar. They had to do Brit Milah. They had Korban Pesach, so they had to do Brit Milah before that. They had Tevilah because it says they had to cleanse themselves before they uh, before Matan Torah. And, uh, uh, you know, they had to prepare themselves. And then uh, and then they had uh, they had the acceptance of the Torah. So you see that uh, the same model is followed by every uh, by every uh, uh, convert. So that that was the process of conversion of Am Yisrael. So whoever was in up to that point, at that point, they got included. And then after that, then there becomes a halacha of uh, intermarriage. But that's afterwards. So at this point, what 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 Moshe Rabbeinu notices about Tzipora and her family and Yitro and all that is that same quality of hachnasat orchim, that same quality of appreciating tzedek and appreciating uh, justice, appreciating uh, uh, concern for uh, for the uh, you know independent of personal interest, and so he's, he gravitates to that. So we got up to the first child of Moshe, and and that's really the theme of you know if you want to see uh, you know uh, the connection between the avot and Moshe Rabbeinu, it's very simple. Uh, what, what does Hashem say to Avram Avinu? That's the, the pasuk that says, what is the essence of the tradition of Avram Avinu that he passed to his children? Tzedek and Mishpat. Uh, and that's exactly what, what Moshe Rabbeinu is uh, trying to implement 
against the uh, against the policies of Pharaoh. So So according to the Pshat, putting the Midrashim aside, according to the Midrashim, the same Pharaoh was around for a really, really long time because they want to say that the original Pharaoh of the of the enslavement was uh, was really the Pharaoh of the time of Yosef, and he just changed his policies. And then they want to say that this paro didn't really die either. But according to the Pshat, these are all new figures. So the original uh, paro that rose up and enslaved the Jews was a new paro. This is yet another one because uh, the paro dies. This is probably the most critical moment and a really, really fundamental uh, yesod in understanding uh, in understanding the story of Yitzhak Mitzrayim, but understanding Judaism in general, that they they cried out at this point. Now, why? And the cry reached God. Now, why did they cry out when the Paro died? Simply, why, why would they cry out? It seems like they should be happy that the uh, the bad Paro is dead. Why are they crying over the death of this Paro? What's the reason? The next fire was probably just as bad. Yeah, at, at least just as bad. Right. They, they were hoping that maybe this paro would die and then, that, you know, a more maybe this whole uh, this whole issue with the uh, enslavement and the persecution is just a uh, is just an aberration because this particular administration is very bad. But with the passing of this paro, maybe we can hope for better times. But that didn't happen. The following paro continued or maybe made worse. We don't know the policies of the previous one. Their hopes were dashed. Their hopes for uh, a lessening of the suffering were dashed. And so then they really cried out because they saw that there was no hope within the existing system of Egypt that they, they believed in the, in, in, the, in the system. They believed in the, uh, in the goodness, the essential goodness of the, uh, of the state of Egypt. And, um, and therefore they, uh, they thought, they assumed that, that, uh, once uh, once the uh, current paro would die, so they would see an alleviation of their suffering because uh, of course things would go back to normal like they were before. And, and, and there was just about this particular paro having hangups and being a bad guy. But as soon as they saw that that wasn't the case, that it was uh, actually uh, entrenched in Egypt, this, uh, this evil. So then they cried out to God because they no longer saw a solution in, within the system uh, of Egypt, within the political uh, framework of Egypt. And, and that's really critical because it says the cry came to God and, uh, and then it says, mm-hmm. So it says that, that God heard their cry and he remembered the covenant with Abraham, Yitzchak and Yaakov and Hashem saw B'nai Yisrael, and he knew. Vayeda Elohim. So Vayeda seems to mean that it mean, meaning that, well, let's leave that for a second. But the, the idea is that, that Hashem's salvation can't come to an unwilling recipient, right? It can only come to a willing recipient. So as long as they were entrenched in Egypt and they were believers in the, uh, in the uh, that, that the, the situation would become better, the situation in Egypt would become better and they would be able to thrive within the framework of Egyptian culture, and that this was just a blip on the screen. So they uh, 
they weren't wouldn't have been receptive to any kind of a redemption because a redemption from what we're just waiting for this bad time to pass we don't want to run anywhere just waiting for this bad time to pass right but once they recognize that that wasn't the case and that in fact things were not going to get any better so then they cried out to Hashem now they're receptive to the to the the appearance of a, a, some kind of a redemption some kind of a redeemer but they had to be receptive Right, we have a we have the old saying: you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make them drink. Um, and that's certainly true here. You can send a Moshe Rabbeinu to the people, but if the people don't are not interested, if they feel that they can solve or they will solve their problems on their own terms, and they don't need some kind of an outside intervention, they're not going to listen, and they're not going to be receptive to the message of Moshe Rabbeinu. So we can understand why this is such an important part. Of the and, and if you look at the way that the Haggadah, when we read the Psukim from Kitavon, the Haggadah, this is another Pasuk, right? When it, the Psukim of the Bikurim, that a person brings the first fruits that are the uh, backbone of the telling of the story at the Seder, these two, the, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the, uh, you know, we cried out to Hashem and then he saw our suffering. What does that mean? Hashem didn't see the suffering before. He didn't. He, he forgot about the covenant before. He didn't see the suffering. He didn't know what was going on. We had to remind him. Obviously, that doesn't make any sense. But what it means is that it wasn't relevant until such time as they were actually receptive to and yearning for some kind of salvation. It's like a guy who has a drinking problem, but they don't express any interest in trying to get any help you're going to have a hard time convincing them that they have a problem or, and they're not going to be willing to receive the help or you try or any other kind of a uh, problem that they might have. They're going to be resistant to receiving help. They have to be, so they have to be open to it. So that once the Jews recognize the uh, hopelessness of their circumstances, and they were actually willing to be receptive to the idea of a salvation or a redemption coming to them. So at that moment, now the process is initiated um, to bringing them Moshe Rabbeinu. But that's why it's only, only at this time that Moshe Rabbeinu is going to be hired by God to save the Jews. Because up till now, there was no point. Up till now, he didn't have an audience that would have listened to him. So there has to be uh, a fertile ground for Moshe Rabbeinu's uh, message first. And that's what this means. Vayar Elohim et Israel, Vayeda Elohim, meaning that now he, he Vayeda means that he knew like it says by uh, when it says by Sodom that uh, if they've really done this wickedness, right, uh, then I uh, then I'll then uh, they're going to be destroyed. And if not, I'll know what to do, right? Meaning it, it's it refers to um, applying some kind of a plan, some kind of a uh, the beginning of a process. So uh, so the beginning of the process is underway. Not that Hashem obviously forgets the breach between himself and Avram Yitzchak and Yaakov, not that he wasn't aware of the suffering of the Jewish people up till now, but it didn't have any significance because Hashem didn't have a way to reach the people if they weren't willing to listen. So what significance did it have in the divine plan that they were suffering if there was nothing God could do to alleviate their suffering? As long as we have free choice, unless we're willing to listen, we don't have a chance to, uh, we don't have a chance to be saved. Okay, that's the that's the message. Now we come to Moshe. So Moshe Rabbeinu was minding his own business, tending to the sheep. And he went to the uh, along the uh, desert. 
He came to the mount, mountain of Hashem, which is the uh, which is the uh, the mountain really of it's Har Sinai actually, right? Chorev, Har Sinai. Was this called because it had this like uh, it had this um, people thought of it as Har or not? Yeah, no, it says it's Al Shem It was called Har because in the future uh, Hashem is going to speak to them there, not because of now, not yet. Right. So what happens is we all know the story. There's a burning bush. That the uh, the bush is on fire, but it's not being consumed. And that's representative of the symbolism of it, of course. Yeah. Oh, you have a question? Sorry, just, just for geography oriented, where is the Dion in relation to Egypt or Israel? And how is he getting to well, it's on. This is in Midbar Sinai. This is on the edge of Midbar Sinai. So, where, but where's he starting from? How did he? Where is he? Yeah, I, 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 don't know the geography precisely, but Midian is, you know, is next to the Midbar Sinai. You go along it when you go to Midian, because it's not, um, it's not like the east of Eretz Israel. Um, I, I would have to look at a map to tell you. But I think it's alongside the 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 uh, the Midbar Sinai. No, that it runs along it, doesn't it? I don't know. When we look at the when we, for example, Midian, like I think it's to the. I thought it was to the more to the northeast, but I'm I'm not exactly sure. Um, uh, we'd have to look because the Midianim and the uh, and the uh, and Moab are related to each other. But I have to look at a map to see exactly where Midian was at the, where Midian was located relative to Eretz Israel. I'm not sure off the top of my head, but in the but he's he's at Har Sinai is the main point now. And Vayome uh, Moshe and this pasuk I find very very interesting because this is a pasuk of internal dialogue which on the surface seems to be unnecessary for us understanding the story, right? Moshe said, "Asura I will turn aside and behold this great vision. Did you have a map? I'm pulling it up on our screen. Yeah, I want to see it also. So uh, let me see. I'll screen share it as soon as I get it. Okay. Okay, I, I found one too. Let me see. So it, yeah, it's to the east on this map, right? But it doesn't show me Eretz Israel in this map. Hold on. Uh, Rabbi, you disabled screen sharing. Oh, I, I did? Not on purpose. Wait a second. It's not letting you do it? I didn't. It's not. Oh, it's not letting you show me? Um, maybe I can make you the host and then it will let me. I'm going to make you the host, okay? Then you now you have to traverse all of this and get here. Do you have it now or no? He has to go through that entire desert. Yeah, right, so, right, so, it's a, so that's okay. So that's where Midian is. So it's southeast, not northeast. Okay. So the um, so it is uh, well that which makes sense because it had to be close to Mitzrayim. It couldn't have been to the north because he he ran there from Mitzrayim. So okay, so that that desert that's the desert up there. 
where exactly we don't really know exactly where Har Sinai is, so it's hard to know exactly where the mountain is. But you could see it's kind of in a desert type of area, and the desert is there. It's to the and and uh, up north is Israel, and so it's so it's parallel with Egypt, basically. It's to the east of Egypt. Okay, that's a, that 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 makes more sense than it being north because we know that Egypt is to the south of Israel. Okay, now. Um, so, so Hashem saw that he, so, so the interesting thing is, what does it tell us? It tells us the internal dialogue. I always found this very interesting internal dialogue of Moshe Rabbeinu that he said, uh, why is the, why is it that I see that the, the bush is not burning? Why does the Torah have to tell us what the internal dialogue of Moshe Rabbeinu that he's wondering, uh, I need to go look, why doesn't this bush burn? And then it says, Hashem, kisar le'ot. Hashem saw that he turned to look. And because Hashem saw that he turned to look, elav Elohim Hashem called to him from the bush, Moshe, Moshe, So what does that show you? There's something about the curiosity of Moshe about the bush that's important for the Torah to emphasize. Because first of all, it tells us that Moshe Rabbeinu said to himself, I really need to turn aside and see why this bush is not being consumed. And then it says, Vayar Hashem kisar lirot, that when Hashem saw that Moshe turned to look at the bush, that's when he addresses Moshe. So there's something about the interest that Moshe has in the phenomenon that the Torah wants to emphasize to you, which I think is really remarkable. Actually, the Ralbag comments on it a lot. He says that you that in order that a person should not be so a person who sees something unusual or sees something out of the ordinary should pursue an understanding of what the significance is, what the explanation, what the meaning is, and not leave it be and just say, oh, that's a weird thing and just keep walking by, right? The fact is that a person who's a seeker of truth, when he sees something like that, some unusual thing, will specifically go towards the thing. Like, I think our nature is we want everything to seem very orderly and very predictable. So if we see something unusual, we'll say, you know what, that was just an exception to the rule, but really things are this way and I'm going to ignore that unusual thing. It was a fluke or whatever. Whereas a great person like Moshe Rabbeinu, who is a seeker of truth, is going to see something out of the ordinary and he's Dafka going to gravitate towards that to try to understand it. And uh, yeah, what did you want to say? I was just wondering, is it maybe a stretch? Is there a connection between this episode of him having an opportunity to just pass and pretend like not really think, give much thought to this bush? And earlier episodes, there is his own opportunity to pass an incident. He could have seen the Egyptian striking the Jew. He could have just went on his day and kind of ignored it. But I, right, yeah, I think I think there is a connection. <laughs> I, th I think the connection is when you see something that is. Uh, whenever you, you would see something that is not right, it's not as it's supposed to be, he doesn't, he's not satisfied with leaving it that way. In other words, that, that's one of the, that's something that someone who is, let's say, a scientific thinker who's seeking the truth, and also somebody who is a, uh, a fighter for justice has that same quality, that if there's something out of order, they can't stomach it, they can't accept it, they, they, have, they can't tolerate it, so the, from an abstract perspective, meaning from the perspective of theory and, and knowledge, 
that's true, that it's usually when you find those unusual phenomena and instead of ignoring them, you pursue trying to understand them, that it leads you to the greatest breakthrough. That is true. And it's also true that when it comes to order of society, when there are injustices or absurdities or uh, contradictions in the way that people are treating one another or the way that society is functioning or the way an institution is operating or whatever it is, that most people will just accept it as the way, that's the way that it is. It is what it is, just go on and uh, don't ask any questions, don't upset the, uh, don't rock the boat and just continue forward. And a rare individual will challenge the status quo and will uh, question the uh, question the way things are going and, uh, and, and try to account for why they're not uh, going the way that they should. So Moshe Rabbein, I think those two qualities very much are, are connected. And, and the Ralbag actually says that this is the quality, this is a great quality of Moshe Rabbeinu. But you in fact see that the Torah emphasizes it a lot because first of all, it tells you that Moshe Rabbeinu asked himself, hmm, I wonder why this is happening that, uh, the, that the bush is not burning, number one. Number two, the Torah tells you that Vayar Hashem Hashem saw that Moshe was attracted, his attention was attracted to it. So he spoke to Hashem. And so he spoke to Moshe, meaning that that quality was the very quality that made Moshe Rabbeinu worthy of the shlichut. It was the fact that he was someone who was not willing to just accept things as they were, even when they didn't make any sense, or even when they violated reason or they violated the principles of justice, uh, whether it be scientific justice, meaning they didn't make any sense in the natural world, or it would be social justice. They didn't make any sense in the political or social world. He wasn't going to just accept that, but he was going to demand an explanation and seek an explanation for that. So that's what made Moshe Rabbeinu who he was. And you see from his activity, pre-Midian activity, or once he came to Midian, that activity also reflects the same quality, that when he sees something out of order, he doesn't just leave it be. And so that's the, that's the, I think what the Torah is highlighting, the Ralbag is the one that really makes it, you know, drew my attention to it many, many years ago when I first read the Ralbag uh, Perush on the, uh, on this Pasuk, but I think it's just a very compelling point that most people will walk by uh, very, very interesting things with uh, very little uh, curiosity, or they, they might feel a little bit of curiosity, but they quickly stifle the curiosity and get back to business, you know, as fast as possible. Whereas that's not the nature of somebody like Moshe Rabbeinu. Seems you like know, that so, would, be one would, you, would you say that, that that curiosity about nature is one of the prerequisites to Nevoah? For Nevoah? For leadership. Um, yeah. You have to be a person who's curious about, about all Chuchmat Hashem to become a Navi. Because the... Um, the uh, what what's going to happen is that a person who um, a person who enters into the realm of learning God's wisdom is going to be inspired with avat Hashem and he's going to have an insatiable desire to know as much as he can, and that's what a navi is going to that that evolves into the experience of nivua eventually those those breakthroughs and insights evolve into the the experience of nivua. If you didn't have that interest, the stifling of that natural curiosity is. Uh, is a real tragedy because that natural curiosity when it's followed through is what leads to the greatest understanding. And of course, yes, to Nivois also on the other end, for sure. Yeah. Now, so now what happens is Hashem says, and, and so he says, Moshe, Moshe, vayomer ineni, vayomer, al balom, don't come here. Shalna lecha me'alu reglecha ki amakom ad 
uh, take your shoes off because this place is a holy ground. Okay. Now, what does it? What does that mean, really? What What's the significance of taking the shoes off? And what the, What does it mean? It's Admat Kodesh. Why is it holy ground? What, what What's the significance of that? What made this place holy all of a sudden? And what's the? Why should he take his shoes off? Why Why are shoes so negative? Yeah, exactly. What's the problem with wearing shoes? There's also there's halacha that you're not supposed to wear shoes on the harabayit, or when you go into the Beit Hamikdash, you're not allowed to wear shoes. The Kohanim don't wear shoes either. Is it is it that the shoes? Or that they're just blocking uh, your interaction with the ground. Right. Is it the question would be is, is, is the problem that he's wearing dirty shoes or is the problem that he is now not being able to interact with the ground? Right. So, uh, yeah, that, that's a good question. In other words, is it like a chatzitza problem? Like right. uh, there's an inter that that it's like like with the Kohanim, that seems to be what it is. In other words, there's supposed to be, there's supposed to be nothing in between the Kohanim and the Beit HaMikdash. They, they merge together with the Beit HaMikdash, so they shouldn't have anything separating between their feet and the ground of the Beit HaMikdash um, that would come in between them. So that's, or is it that, or is it that, um, that there's a disrespect involved because the shoes are dirty, right? So it's, that's a really good point. And may, that, that might be the difference between, let's say, a visitor to the Beit HaMikdash is also not supposed to wear shoes. That's probably more because it's yeah, a uh, it's dirty because it's disrespectful because you're wearing your dirty shoes into a sacred place that's supposed to be uh, you're supposed to show respect as opposed to the Kohanim that it's an act of humility basically that they don't hold themselves above the ground of the Beit HaMikdash but they are flat on the ground of the Beit HaMikdash. It's a type of a humility. Just like you see that Avelim Lahavdil, Avelim don't wear shoes, really. I mean, they wear non-leather shoes, but really it's the idea of not wearing shoes, meaning that they are, it's a type of humbling of them. It's a type of, uh, it's a demonstration of that you're humbled by the Avelut. The shoes hold you above the ground. Or, you know, Yom Kippur also, you're humbled on Yom Kippur uh, and you're you're not and it's a type of a it's a type of a, it gives you a feeling of being uh, of upholding yourself above the ground is a uh, you know is is feeding into your sense of dignity and your sense of distinction as a human being as opposed to uh, the, the experience of your feet on the ground which is a much more um, like we say the person is uh, uh, you know is very grounded he's very down to earth. You know, we even we use that as a as a term for someone who doesn't think of themselves as so high. They're very down to earth, All right? So, so that I, and and I would think I would think in this particular case that second one is more what the uh, what the message is here. In other words, what he's saying to Moshe is adopt the stance of an Eved Hashem because the, the, you're standing on sacred ground, meaning you, are, you have entered in to the realm of Avodat Hashem. So take off your shoes, which the shoes make give you a sense of being on a pedestal. To re- remove that pedestal from yourself because you are standing in a place where you are, uh, you're entering into the framework of Avodat Hashem, like in the Beit HaMikdash of the Kohanim, right? That, that's, what it's, that's the sense that I get 
from uh, from what it's saying. Now, Rabbi, do we have to play with shuvah? No, I mean it's it depends upon the uh, that whatever the whatever the uh, custom is of the place in which you live. Like basically, if you um, if in your culture people don't wear shoes normally when they go to official functions, so then you wouldn't need to because uh, it's not considered a special kavod to wear shoes. But if you're in a culture where you would never go to any uh, official function not wearing shoes, so then you shouldn't be dressed in a way that's less than the kavod that you would, uh, then, that you would render to a human uh, boss or something like that, or a human ruler, you would, would you go to visit uh, a dignitary barefoot, maybe in Saudi Arabia, but probably not in, uh, in uh, New York. You know, it's, uh, it's gonna depend on the culture. Right. So um, so but this seems to be adopting a stance of Abdut or adopting a humble stance in the presence of a Makom Kadosh. You are you've now entered into the realm of uh, of Nivu'ah, of becoming a Shaliach of Hashem, becoming an Ever Hashem. I am the God of your father. This is some of the most interesting stuff because you're seeing the evolution or the emergence of Moshe Rabbeinu as a Navi and uh, his evolution in terms of his first encounter with God, which is a rare, um, there's a rare amount of detail in this process relative to other Nevi'im. Even let's say Shmuel, that we see his first prophecy there isn't the level of detail in terms of negotiating this new role of being a Navi that we find with Moshe Rabbeinu. So Hashem first puts him sort of in his place and says, take off your shoes. Now we say, now it says Moshe covered his face. And we know that the Gemara actually records two opinions about whether that was the right thing to do or the wrong thing to do. Because one position says that his covering of his face, he gave up the opportunity to gain more insight. And therefore, it was a mistake of Moshe Rabbeinu to cover his face. Um, and, uh, but then the other opinion says, no, because he covered his face now, later on, his face glowed, right? It was, it, he would have the glowing face when he came down from Har Sinai. And that's the, that's the explanation that the Rambam likes the most in the Moran of Uchim. Why? Because the Rambam's big thing in the Moran of Uchim is that progress in knowledge of God has to be gradual and it can't be rushed and it can't be forced. And so Moshe Rabbeinu at this moment of truth recognized, I just made an, I just advanced in my knowledge of God in this moment of prophecy, but I don't want to rush too far ahead. I don't want to get ahead of myself because in getting ahead of myself, I'm going to cause damage to myself. So he pulled back. And because he pulled back, that showed that he had the humility necessary to develop to even higher levels as opposed to the person who wants to jump from zero to the highest level in a moment, right? Like the Rambam is very emphatic about this in the Moran of Uchim, talking about this, that a person should not try to scale the heights of metaphysical knowledge of God prematurely, right? It's a very dangerous thing to do and it's counterproductive. It actually takes you away from reality. It's counterproductive. Uh, Moshe Rabbeinu is presented, in other words, seemingly, seemingly, to the extent that we can understand Nivua and the extent we can understand Moshe Rabbeinu's Nivua, especially, um, the Ramban says, and, and clearly he's right, that at this stage, 
the, the, the Moshe Rabbeinu wasn't on the level of Nivuah that he would later be. Because in later time, he has a level of Nivuah where he doesn't need any visions or any symbols or any kind of uh, thing like that to perceive the Nivuah. Here he's still at a beginning stage more. So when he sees this vision, the implication is, and again, to the extent that we can understand, that he, as an independent actor, as the Navi, could have tried to stretch his mind to grasp more than what he did. He could have tried to apprehend something more, and he withdrew. He, rec- he, he set a boundary for himself that he didn't cross. Now, what exactly that meant and exactly what he could have understood or would have understood, or this, we don't know. But the idea that he covered his face is a sign of his humility. And as I had mentioned before, humility is, significant, is the most significant characteristic in, the ter- in terms of the search for truth, because it means that the person doesn't get ahead of themselves. A lot of times a person who is not humble will be afraid to ask certain questions because it makes them look like a fool, or they will think that they know things that they don't know, um, or they'll want to advance to the next level because they've become, uh, they feel that this level that they're at now is not uh, sufficiently uh, superior. They want to advance to the next level without properly building the foundation at the level they're at now. So Moshe Rabbeinu there is a model, really, of a person seeking Yediyat Hashem with gradual progress, with the patience and the humility that's necessary. So we see here two qualities. He has a very strong appetite for knowledge because he has the curiosity to investigate the spectacle. And he has the humility to hold himself back from going too far in the first opportunity. Very interesting because... You could say, what if, you know, why is this important to uh, the story of Geulah from Mitzrayim? How Moshe Rabbeinu negotiated his curiosity, but he didn't go too far. He limited himself, even though he was very curious. He wanted to know, but he was humped. Why do I need to know that about Moshe Rabbeinu? Cut to the chase. How is he saving the Jewish people from Mitzrayim? What do I need to know about his personal journey as a Navi? He's not writing his autobiography, you know, like uh, writing his memoirs about how he, uh, how he experienced prophecy. Why is that important? But you see that throughout the career of Moshe Rabbeinu, Moshe Rabbeinu is, and this is a very, very important yesod in understanding Moshe Rabbeinu as a leader. His hanhaga, his manigut actually, his leadership of the people is always a direct corollary or direct, directly correlates to his Yediyat Hashem. His Yediyat Hashem and his leadership of the people go hand in hand. So if he's a person who is, takes the proper steps in understanding God, he's also going to be the person who takes the proper steps, the gradual, patient, attentive steps in applying his knowledge of God to the leadership of the people, rather than being, let's say, an Eliyahu Navi type person who wants things to happen instantaneously, sort of, uh, sort of approach. Moshe Rabbeinu is qualities in 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 seeking Yidiyat Hashem are the same qualities that govern his conduct vis-a-vis the people, and we we see that throughout all of his experience. Like for example, when he's seeking to renew the covenant between Hashem and, and the Jewish people after Egel Azav, he says. He asks for knowledge of God. You know, teach me the ways of God. And then from the zechut that I'll be a better, a greater knower of God, I will also be a better leader of the people. And that zechut will allow the people a chance 
uh, a second chance at, uh, at a covenant with Hashem in the aftermath of the Egel Azav. So that, that it shows you, it's important to understand Moshe Rabbeinu's relationship to Yediyat Hashem because it's also his relationship to the people. His relationship to the people is a function as, of his, uh, his process of Yediyat Hashem. It reflects the process uh, of Yediyat Hashem uh, that he's going through. And to the extent that that process of Yediyat Hashem is successful and, 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 and progresses from stage to stage successfully, so does his leadership progress to the point that the miracles, let's say, for instance, that he performs at the earlier stages of the Yitzhak Mitzrayim pale by comparison with the miracles that he performs later on because his level of Nifah is qualitatively different by then. Uh, by the time he comes to Har Sinai, he's a totally different Navi than what he is at this stage where he's also at Har Sinai, but he's at Har Sinai as an initiate into the process of being a Navi. Okay, so this is the um, this is the the, the opening nevuah, uh, uh, and 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 then was Hashem. I have seen the poverty, meaning the uh, deprivation of my nation in Egypt. And their cry I have heard because of their tormentors, because I know their pain. In other words, Hashem is describing the suffering and the pain of Am Yisrael, which of course Moshe Rabbeinu is familiar with. He's aware of it also. He just doesn't see any hope for those people because those people are, uh, what good are you going to do for those people? They don't even want any help, right? So what does Hashem say? I'm going to take them out from that place and bring them to a land flowing with milk and honey, the place of the Kenani and the Chiti, etc., etc. The whole promise of the Avot that we're familiar with, right? So now he makes the pitch. In other words, I, I, I've heard there's, I've seen their suffering. I know that they're being tormented um, and I'm going to bring them to the land of Israel. Now the cry of Bnei Israel has come to me and I've seen their, uh, I've seen their oppression. So I'm sending you to Paro and you're going to take my children. You're going to take my nation out of Mitzrayim. Okay. So he's giving him the command. In other words, he described what he's going to do, but now he describes what Moshe needs to do. Meaning you also need to identify with the injustice that's going on there and act on my behalf to free the Jewish people from Mitzrayim. Okay. That's the, that's the initial uh, uh, pitch from what does Moshe say? Who am I to go to Paro and to take the Jewish people out of Mitzrayim? Now, interestingly, the Chazal and the Ralbag and other Mepharshim as well interpret this as two different objections, not one. The first one is who am I to go to Paro because I am nobody? And how am I going to be able to convince Paro to release the Jews? What is he going to listen to me? That's objection number one. Objection number two is, what zechut do these people have 
What? So they're crying. There's a lot of people crying in the world. There's a lot of people suffering in the world. Okay. Why does the fact that they're crying mean that they have the zechut that they're going to be able to be taken out of bondage in such a dramatic and revolutionary manner that's never been seen in the history of mankind? How, how's that going to be possible? Right. So, in other words, the court, and that's how Rashi also Rashi also says the af im chashuvani Yisrael right? What's the zechut of Israel that they should have the ness? The Ralbag says the same. Most of the mefarshim they're going after what the Chazal say, right? That and and the Seforno also says they're biltiro uyim lekach. They're not worthy. Okay. So what's wrong? Something wrong? I can't hear you for some reason suddenly. Is that possible that Moshe and this Paro are on the same age grew up together as children? Maybe, maybe. Uh, well, they do have that in the movies, you know. Uh, <laughs> in, in the movies, they always portray them as like, oh yeah, they, they grew up together and everything. It's possible. I'll... I don't think that Paro didn't know who Moshe Rabbeinu was. Let's put it that way. I don't know if Paro had like some kind of buddy relationship with Moshe growing up. I have no idea about that. Apparently, Rabbi Sachs was very uh, was, uh, constantly uh, like consulted how to make a movie. Really? Yeah. Yeah. That he was what? He was he was like uh, on the, the board of like religious. Of, uh, of the movie of Kofidah. Like they, they, they took his, uh, his word into account as well in making. Well, in, in this. It doesn't mean much. Right. Look, it's possible that uh, I, I'm sure they. I, I wouldn't be shocked in the case of, of, of Paro and Moshe that they knew each other, let's say, and that they had some history with each Maybe other. That's also why Moshe was. Maybe, yeah. yeah. They're also on a first-name basis. Paro's like, Lama Moshe He's like, he's talking about him as somebody that he knows, not somebody he never heard of before. It's not like this guy and this other guy, get out of here. He's, he's talking about it. He knows who they are. I'm pretty sure he knows who they are. Um, but the, the question is, is that significant? It could be. It could be that Moshe feels, how am I going to be able to get through to this guy? He already knows me, but he also hasn't been there in 60 years. So uh, I'm not necessarily convinced that that makes that much difference at this point. Who knows? Who knows? But for sure, he feels I'm not worthy of uh, taking upon myself this uh, capable or worthy of taking this job upon myself. And what zechut does Bnei Israel have that you're going to come and make such a miraculous transformation for them? What did they do to deserve it? Okay. So that so this is and and it's fascinating because why? Because Nevi'im, Jewish Nevi'im, argue with God all the time. <laughs> right? It's, it's, a, it's a unique thing in our religion that we argue with God. Not only do we argue with Hashem, even the Chachamim of the Gemara argue with Hashem. Right? And store, there are stories in the Gemara where, oh, Hashem said the Halakha is this way, but they still go the other way. Right? There's a, there's a sense that, that a, a human being, Hashem can say something, but it's up to a human being to understand that and to grapple with it. And it's not necessarily absolute just because Hashem said it, which is a remarkable thing because you see that, let's say, for example, Avram Avinu arguing with Hashem regarding Sidon, 
right? They, you can have a situation where, or or when Hashem wants to destroy the Jewish people more than once, and Moshe Rabbeinu argues with him. There's no sense of passivity in the face of God. A person can advocate against uh, the initial proposal of Hashem, and it could come out differently. It could be effective uh, advocacy. Yes. Um, exactly on what you're talking about now, when we have examples of Nevi'im who have arguments and dialogues with Hashem, I'm trying to kind of understand how it, it took place. So is it that there was an initial command, and Nabi struggled with that command, but then is it possible that, let's say in the dialogue statements that are attributed to Hashem, later on in the dialogue or realizations that Right. So, right. I mean, the problem, I guess, is like this, that when we um, when we talk about Nivuah, when Nivuah is portrayed to us in the Tanakh, it's which means it's presented to you as God spoke to this person and told them such and such. And then the person argued back X, Y, Z, and then Hashem reiterates uh, another thing, and then the person goes back. There's a dialogue going on. Now, obviously, that's very anthropomorphic, right? That's a very right. anthropomorphic. Even the idea of Hashem said this and the person said back, it's very anthropomorphic. So how did it really occur? Okay, if you want to go to the more Nebuchim level of understanding Parashat Shemot, obviously Nebuah occurs in the mind of the Navi, and it's not really a dialogue the way that it's portrayed in the text as a Hashem said this, and Moshe Rabbeinu argued back, and Hashem said another thing, but instead what's happening is a grappling in the mind of Moshe with certain ideas that Hashem is presenting to the Navi, and then his response or his reaction to those ideas, and then, Hashem, and then Hashem providing a further clarification and insight to the Navi, and then his response or reaction or pushback to that idea, and so on, there is a pro it's really a process of discovery and evolution of understanding in the mind of the Navi, right? That's really what all Devar Hashem is. What all Nivuah is, is a process of intellectual understanding that's occurring in the mind of the Navi. But the only way we can really process that and understand that in our terms is as a dialogue. In other words, it's presented to us, like everything else. Uh, as a dialogue that took place with words and sentences and statements and argument back and forth. But in the ultimate reality, of course, it's really a, uh, a prophetic experience that is a grappling with ideas that are discovered by, revealed to the Navi, his reaction to them, a further clarification, a further reaction, a further clarification, and it's occurring within the mind of the Navi, right? Right. So if you want to think of it that way, as more of a, uh, it's, I don't want to take out the role of God in the story because that's, he definitely is in there. But yeah, obviously the communication, the back and forth, the clarification, the pushback, the retractions, all of this is happening in the mind of the Navi. It's the mind of the Navi grappling with the message of the Nevoah. It's not an actual that Moshe Rabbeinu is arguing and a voice is coming down and arguing back. Are we, are we tying this all down to that moment that he was at the Senet? Or could this be that initial revelation at the Senet, and then this is something that went back and forth in his head over the course of weeks? Or do we need to tie it down to... I mean, I, I don't know if you would have to say that it happened in that moment, but it does seem like it did. I mean, I, I, I wouldn't... 
I don't think we have to assume that it happened over any longer time. It could have been an experience of prophecy that Moshe Rabbeinu had a lot of resistance to the message of the prophecy, went back and forth. There was an additional clarification or breakthrough. There was an additional resistance. There was an additional breakthrough, additional resistance. And of course, it's being facilitated by Hashem, but it's an intellectual process uh, of, of discovery on the part of Moshe Rabbeinu. I don't think it had to have taken place over a long, long time, but uh, but it didn't. It, it, what, what I'm saying is that um, if you want to apply principles of the Moen Nebuchim to your understanding of Chumash, then you have to be honest and say that it wasn't a dialogue like what happens in the movies. It was an inner process of discovery and development and refinement of certain ideas and, uh, uh, and in, in terms of understanding Hashem's plan and his role in it that he struggled with within himself. That doesn't mean that Hashem is not actually conveying something to him but that the conveying doesn't happen through uh, speech and uh, in the way that, you know, it's, it seems to on the surface in the text, because the surface of the text is, uh, you know, so, so the, so yeah, if you want so really it's happening inside his head, so to speak. Yeah. The reason why I asked the question about the time was just because it seems not hard to believe, maybe unlikely that, was able to overcome resistance to these different ideas so quickly, as uh-huh. opposed to it's because it seems like if we're to, if you understand it on the more basic level of before an actual dialogue between two people, yeah, that can occur pretty quickly. But these are all individual ideas that he that he developed until he was okay to understand that his resistance to those ideas. I would think it would just take longer for him to. I don't know. I I, I don't know. I mean, definitely some ideas take longer for us to process. But look, if the Nevoah was initially a vision of basically the suffering of Am Yisrael is intolerable and needs to be addressed, and that you are the person who will be capable of taking them out, the question is going to be, well, how am I going to do that? And what am I going to do? What is the basis for taking them out? Meaning, what is the zechut of these people to receive such a divine intervention? And then there's going to be a back and forth. Well, what about this problem? What about the other problem? In other words, in the the emergence of the idea is pretty natural. I feel like it's pretty organic. I'm not sure it would take that much time. Although Chazal do say that this took a few days, actually. I mean, if that, you know, they say that this nevoah happened over more than, it wasn't a five-minute nevoah. That it, that it was a that it happened over a process of a couple of days. There are midrashim would say that, so maybe maybe you're right, and this was a little bit more of a protracted thing. I don't think it would have taken weeks, but definitely each issue that he came upon maybe required further clarification so that he could understand exactly what the plan was and how he was going to be able to carry it out, which seems to be a very reasonable concern on his part for many reasons. Right? There's there's the technical aspect, which is Moshe Rabbeinu, how is he going to do it, and then there's the theological aspect, which is why all of a sudden does every suffering person, uh, uh, you know, or even a suffering group have a divine intervention to to break the yoke of the uh, persecution and to pull them out of the country. I mean, that never happened in any other case. And we have, uh, unfortunately, ample record of uh, persecution and genocide uh, in history, and God didn't do that. And as I once explained in in our Moran Bukhim class, for those who are in that class, um, the reason is because because God's salvation is never tied to physical survival or to the alleviation of physical pain. Even though physical survival and physical pain uh, are important, they're, they're important to us, 
physical pain is, is bad and, and survival is good, but divine intervention always relates to Yidiyat Hashem. It doesn't relate to uh, the physical alone. It, in terms of the physical, Hashem's salvation relates to the survival of the species. But in terms of uh, individuals, Hashem's salvation is instrumental to greater Yidiyat Hashem and awareness of God. So, um, so if you're going to remove one group of people from another, but they're just going to be the same, just as bad as the people that you saved them from, or worse, or at least, you know, uh, they're not going to have any further enlightenment. They're just going to have physical, more physical freedom and less physical pain. That wouldn't necessarily justify a divine intervention. And that's what Moshe Rabbeinu is asking. What is, what is the basis for taking these people out? What good is it going to serve? What? So you're going to release a bunch of... Uh, a bunch of people who are enslaved now. So, so what are they going to do? That, what, what's the point? So they're going to come to Israel and then enslave other people or, or, uh, uh, or create a nation of, uh, of ungrateful, uh, uh, you know, difficult uh, fighting uh, people like uh, I've seen them to be or whatever Moshe Rabbeinu perceived them, you know? The idea is that it has to be tied to some divine plan. Okay, so, um, and, and then, and then if, we, if we look further, so Hashem says, this is a little bit of a different, difficult pasuk. So first it says, how are you going to do it? The first question was, how am I going to do it? And the answer is, I'm going to be with you. I'm going to support you. You're going to be able to do it. And this is the sign that I sent you. Now, the one way, I think most of the Mepharshim read that as connected to the first half of the statement, meaning that, I'm going to be with you. And the fact that I'm with you is the sign that I'm the one who sent you, right? Meaning that the fact that you're going to succeed and be capable, you're going to rise to the occasion of fulfilling this task is itself going to be the demonstration that I'm with you because a normal person wouldn't be able to achieve that, right? They say that's the answer to the second question. Meaning you're right that at this moment, the Jewish people might not seem worthy of any special divine favor or intervention or redemption or salvation or anything like that. But what you're going to bring them back to this mountain and they're going to serve God at this mountain, meaning at Mount Sinai, at Har Sinai, they're going to receive the Torah and that moment is going to transform them into Mamlechet Kohanim V'goy Kadosh. So you might not see the potential that they have right now, but by the time they come out of Egypt, after all the makot they're going to witness, all that they're going to learn, everything, all the trials that they're going to have to pass, such as Korban Pesach, etc., all of that, you're going to, they're going to reach a point that they're going to come to this very mountain where you are standing and you are, you know, this holy place, and they're going to receive the Torah at this place, and they're going to be transformed into a nation of, uh, of uh, servants of God. And it's and telling him kind of like the same experience you just had here at Har Horeb, Meaning interacting with me and therefore becoming greater, going through this process and becoming greater than what you were previous. And the same thing that's going to happen to the Meso when they come to Akbar also. Like, relax, yeah. they're going to be fine. Don't worry. I'm going to take care of them also. Right. But the concern is, in other words, he right now from Moshe, it would be like if you saw like, the worst class in the school of all the losers and all. I'm not saying that the Jewish people were that bad. I'm not, they don't want to say uh, bad, bad things, but I'm saying like, he saw them as like, what are these people? Uh, why are these people worthy of such a divine intervention that they're going to you're going to take them out? I can't see the potential that they have to be anything that God would take a special interest in. 
And so Hashem is saying, by the time, by the time you take them out of Egypt, they're going to be ready to serve God at this mountain and be a totally different kind of nation than what they seem to you now, because the potential that they have is a lot greater than what you perceive on the surface. Right, so so that's the answer to the chiyotziat b'nei sami mitzrayim. How am I gonna? How can I justify taking them out of Egypt? How am how am I gonna be able to do it? That Hashem is guaranteeing He's gonna help them out. But how are they gonna be worthy of it? They're gonna be worthy of it because you're gonna see that their their potential is gonna be actualized through the process of the redemption, such that by the time they get out, they're ready to stand at this very mountain and have a prophetic experience themselves of receiving the Torah, they're going to be on that level. And uh, and that's pretty amazing. So what Moshe Rabbeinu himself is experiencing now of the Nivuah, they might not be on that same level, but uh, they're going to have some, uh, they're, they're going to be worthy of being in that same holy place and uh, and receiving the divine presence too. So it's a, uh, with fire too. And like a lot of the other, uh, a lot of the well, other- it's, re- it's recreated. Yeah, there's a lot of similarities between the, this this event and that event. But that's the, that's the uh, it's coming full circle. In other words, you're going to lead them to this point that you are at right now. That's, that's, right. that's what they're going to come, right? So you're coming from a point of, uh, you know, uh, of development of, that you've, you've achieved and you are going to guide them along it. They're going to come, they're going to get to this point too. Not necessarily his level per se, but so, enough of it that it justifies them becoming uh, Am Hashem. Yeah. Oh, you're... Uh... To the Rabbah's interpretation of the Yosef Mesa, uh, he doesn't question the, the worthiness of Tiporat uh, to have been sisters to have been saved from the Roim. Initial Yehudi for six thousand Jews doesn't seem concerned with like justification for them being oppressed. It's just the fact that they were oppressed. So, what do you mean, Rabbeinu? Yeah. So, Right, because yeah. because because a person, a purely philosophical way of looking at things, a kind of a stoic philosophical way of looking at things, and a very like more nebuchim way of looking at things is: look, people oppress each other. Oh, you know, right now this group is uh, is is uh, lording over that group. The next day that group will be lording over another one. The next day this one will take advantage of that one. It, it's all in the material framework about the strong. And, you know, and the weak and the balance that's constantly shifting of who's in the position of strength and who's in the position of weakness, that in the eyes of God is, uh, is not really that, that's about as significant as a uh, low tide and high tide at the ocean. I mean, it's like, uh, it's just another accident of history that it goes back and forth. Now, if truly righteous, great people, tzaddikim v'chassidim, are persecuted by uh, by wicked people, so that raises a question of this is not just because you're allowing physical power and strength to stifle what is actually really important in God's eyes, which is uh, which is righteousness and Torah and knowledge and uh, and morality and so on. So then it really becomes an issue. How can God allow that? But once Moshe Rabbeinu attempted to Im- implement justice and was rebuffed and saw these people are not interested in, uh, in justice. These people are not interested in anything different than what they have. They're just maybe up there at a disadvantage right now. You know, so uh, the next day they'll be at an, right now they're at a disadvantage. The future will be at an advantage. Um, it's, that's just how high tide and low tide of, uh, of, of life goes. You know, it has nothing to do with God, nothing to do with uh, anything spiritual or transcendent or or holy. But uh, and, and that's why d- that didn't bother him after he saw that the Jewish people didn't seem to be very refined. 
prior to that, he said, oh, these are the children of Abraham, Yitzchak, and Yaakov. How could it be that they're enslaved to these uh, barbaric uh, Egyptians? Although the Egyptians weren't really that barbaric, but relative to, let's say, what the children of Abraham, Yitzchak, and Yaakov are supposed to be. But once he had an encounter with them and realized this was not what I thought I was signing up for, he didn't, uh, he didn't anymore... Uh, it wasn't troubled anymore by the uh, by the by the oppression itself because uh, all of society's oppression. What do you mean? It's all about the strong taking advantage of the weak uh, and the you know the weak eventually achieving a position of greater strength and and giving back to the people that were once uh, once dishing it to them. You know, it's like uh, that's all it is. It's like a dog eat dog or uh, you know it's a jungle out there. Whatever whatever people say. You know, it's just the same thing. Just survival of the fittest. Once you bring in some kind of an idea of Torah, some kind of an idea of Yidiyat Hashem, some idea of Kiddushah, so then it's a travesty. And that's why uh, that's why in the Gemara even, what does Moshe Rabbeinu say when he sees Rabbi Akiva being killed by the Romans? He says, How is it possible that somebody like Rabbi Akiva would be killed by the Romans? Now that doesn't make any sense. That's that's an injustice because how because Rabbi Akiva is the whole purpose of the creation to have a purpose, person like that and you allow him to be persecuted and killed by an animal basically a person who's an animal at the level of an animal how how, how could you allow that there you really have a concern. So playing off what Jordan's saying, is it possible to just read it as Moshe is not questioning the Jews? He's just saying, who am I to go to Paro and who am I? The only, reason, the only reason I'm reading it that way is because that's based on the Chazal. I mean, if I, uh, I don't think I would have come to that, except that Rashi says that, and the Ralbag says, and Zephon says. Never questions people's worthiness. He just does what, what's right. He doesn't care whether the person's worthy. Well, yeah, but the, the, there's definitely an undercurrent of thought, first starting with the Midrashim, and a lot of them are brought by Rashi in this parasha. And also uh, through other mafarshim too, there is a there's an impression that uh, or there's there's a theme that Moshe Rabbeinu initially felt that the uh, persecution against the Jews was unjustified because they were a holy people, but then eventually said like when he killed the Egyptian and it says Achen no the matter is known when the, when uh, when they when they gave him uh, when they talked back to him when he when he intervened with the two Jews fighting. The matter is known. So, uh, so Rashid says there, and the Ralbag and all of them, Farshim, follow the same idea. That drash is that, oh, now I understand why the Jews ended up persecuted because they're, uh, they're not very nice. Right? So, meaning that, that he left. The reason why, been, I think the reason why the Chazal take that tact is because otherwise a person like Moshe Rabbeinu wouldn't have given up on them. I think the point, the idea is, why would such a warrior for justice as Moshe Rabbeinu just abandon his people and go live in Midian and not give another thought for 60 years to the welfare of those slaves, if not for the fact that he somehow felt, you know what, they they wouldn't be any better off being free because uh, they wouldn't know what to do. Maybe, you know, I'm just saying, I'm, I'm explaining what the Chazal say. I, I wouldn't come and uh, and 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 uh, say bad things about the Jewish people. I'm saying what the Chazal say, and they're allowed to do it. So uh, since they say it, and the Mefarshim seem to follow that approach, that that was one of the things that Moshe Rabbeinu was grappling with. Uh, and and what's the what's the odd again? I don't understand what the odd is. What was happening? 
But this, according to the Ralbag, like especially, I think really according to all the Mefarshim, they have this idea. Uh, the Ibn Ezra mentions it, the Ralbag for sure a lot. He really, really dwells on it. But the idea that the whole process of Yitziat Mitzrayim, all the Makot and, and all of that is an educational program that was meant to make the, and the Sephorno talks about it too, that was meant to give the Jewish people a level of knowledge of Hashem that would make them fully worthy of all the miracles of Yitziat Mitzrayim. That it was, and, and what do you see as the ultimate example of that? And the most famous example maybe is that it says uh, when, uh, when, uh, when they get the mitzvah of uh, bringing the Korban Pesach, he says, Mishchu ukhu lachem tzon pasach. That's the pasuk and go pull a uh, sheep and do a Korban Pesach. And what do the rabbis say? Mishchu yedchem mina avodazara. Pull your hands away from idolatry. Take for yourself the sheep of the mitzvah. That was the first time that the Jews actually had to do a mitzvah. And if they didn't do the mitzvah, they wouldn't have had the zechut of leaving Egypt. So that's a couple of parashiot ahead. But the idea is that think about all the preliminary convincing, all the preliminary um, development of understanding that was necessary for them to make that leap of of slaughtering that sheep and doing that Korban Pesach. It was not a given that they would be willing to do such a thing. So there was a lot of groundwork laid through the process of the Makot and everything else to bring them to the point where they could make that leap of faith, so to speak, and, and fulfill that mitzvah. And that was what Hashem was saying. You're going to see by the time they get to the point that they're ready to leave Egypt, they're going to be ready to be the people that receive the Torah already. They're going to be on the, on the, on the path to receiving the Torah already, not what you think of them right now. And, uh, and, and that, in fact, is the case. So this is the first step in the dialogue. I think that from what I understood, you wanted to uh, continue with more of parasha after, the, after your breakfast because you don't want to miss any of the parasha. So well, that's fine. So why don't you guys take a short break? Um, I'll get go get them to eat too. You guys get them to eat, and then we'll continue uh, doing this until we feel that we've really uh, hit the jackpot. Because I know you guys really want to do this, right? This is like this is the thing you guys want to do the most. So we'll do it. Awesome. Thank you.